Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it, to, counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, and he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, and I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the, the Kenizzites, the Catamanites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your word. We pray and ask that you would indeed speak to us, that you would meet with us, your people, strengthening us, encouraging us in all truth and goodness. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You know, as we continue through the book of Genesis, I came across this, there's this preacher who uh, summarized the life of Abraham uh, like this. He says, you know, God says to Abraham, you know, go from, go from your land, and Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll, I'll tell you later. And then God says, listen, I'm going to give you um, some land. And Abraham says, okay, where? And God says, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you later. And then God says, you know, I'll, I'm going to give you a child. And Abraham says, how? And God says, I'll, I'll tell you later. And then finally, God gives him a child. And then what does God say to him? God says, I want you to kill your child. And Abraham says, Why? God says, I'll tell you later. Just go up the mountain. Take the knife and the wood. You know, Abraham is this character. Uh, there's almost larger than life. You know, as he's a man who, as Tim Keller puts it, lived a big life. Uh, following God into the great unknown. Uh, encountering all these great moments uh, in scripture. But he wasn't perfect. He had his faults. We've gone over some of those as we've studied him. But in the big moments, 
when it really counted, Abraham, he came through. He didn't let the circumstances master him. Uh, this is something that we call faith, right? Belief against all odds. In the big moments, he didn't shrink from his faith, but he actually acted on his faith. And sometimes I think when we see, you know, profound acts of faith, when we see someone with big faith, we can wrongly assume that they don't have any doubts, um, that they never question uh, anything. But I think, I think oftentimes, I think the larger the faith that we have, the larger the doubt there is. Because Abraham was both a man with profound faith, but also with great doubts. And I think everyone here in this room can relate to doubting. You know, God calls us uh, into this life with him. And this life that he calls us into with him is filled with profound promises. Uh, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, an inheritance that we can only imagine. Um, but most of those promises that he promises to us, or many of them, are beyond our, our reach. Um, like eternal life and inheritance, we don't get that until after we die. On, on top of that, each day will bring new sorrows, new pains, new challenges, new things to chip away at our faith and to let doubt come into our souls. The question is, in those challenges, in the day-to-day challenges and the unrealized promises of God, what anchors your soul? What steadies you through rough waters? What sees you through so you don't lose the hope that you have in the midst of doubts, that your doubts don't overcome you? Or to borrow a question from this conversation that Abraham has with God, how do you know that God is true to his promises? How do you you actually know that God's promises are real? How do you know? Even when they seem impossible. And, uh, you know, in what is arguably the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament, Genesis 15, which I would argue probably is, um, we learn the answer to that question of our doubt. We learn that all-important question, how do you know? How do you overcome doubt? How can you know that God is actually true despite the doubt, despite the circumstances, despite all the things that have not happened the way you wanted to in life? How can you know? And uh, I think we're going to see two Uh, profound answers in this text for us this morning to the question of how do we know? We know that God's promises are true, that he is real because of the assurance of his word. And secondly, we're gonna find that we we know because of the assurance of his oath. We know because of the assurance of his word and his oath. So first, answer the question of how do we know is we know because of the assurance of his word. Look with me back here at verse one. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So first off, you know, you ask the question. He says, after these things, what things? Well, I know everyone that was here last week remembers everything that I said last week. I know. But for those other people that weren't here last week, I'll just remind you real quick. Um, So real quick, last week, you know, after these things, the things that he's talking about is Abraham just went and defeated four kings of Babylon, rescuing Lot, and and, uh, he brought back um, a bunch of stuff that belonged to other people with him, and uh, one of those people that he, he, how can I say this, Um, some of the stuff he brought back belonged to the king of Sodom, and so the king of Sodom said, hey, you can keep some of that stuff because he wanted him to like be under him. He wanted Abraham to be subservient to the king of Sodom. And Abraham's like, no, you can take all your stuff back. I don't want any of it. And, and 
so he, he basically turned away an insane amount of wealth. Um, and it seems uh, that this caused some fear and doubt to creep into Abraham. He's wondering, did I, did I do the right thing? Should I just kept that? Uh, it was a lot of, a lot of money. Um, did I trust the right thing? Will God actually fulfill his promises to me? And so God comes to him in the midst of probably feeling some of those things. And he says, fear not. He says, I'm your shield. What do shields do? Shields protect. He says, I'm your protection. And he says, your reward will be great. He says, I, functionally saying, God is saying, I am your reward. The reward that was offered by King Sodom, as great as it was, is nothing compared to the reward that you're going to find in me. And this sounds good, right? But Abraham's like, okay, I need a little bit more than you just, uh, I need some more assurances here. And so there's this profound thing for us to learn is he actually just asks God. How often when we actually question God, do we just not bother him with it? And this teaches us we need to be people who bother God when we have problems with him. And so he asks, verse two, he says this. He says, but Abraham said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Remember, he's, an old, he's old in age, and, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And so Abraham says, this, you promised me all this stuff. You promised me this land. You promised me this lineage, but I have nothing so far. It's, the day is getting late. I don't know if you know how the biology thing works, but there's not much time left. Um, I have no lineage. Um, and this is actually going to be kind of constant theme for Abraham, this lineage theme in the next few, few chapters. Um, but he's wondering, how can I be a great nation if I have no children and my own heir is not my own blood? And look how God responds to Abraham's question. He doesn't get mad or chastise Abraham for, for asking, for questioning. But he comes and he actually offers him assurance. Because uh, God doesn't want to leave you in your doubt. He actually doesn't delight in your suffering. Uh, but he draws near. And we see how he draws near here. Um, in verse 4, he says this, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look to, toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. This is this amazing thing. that How does God draw near? He draws near through his word. It says the word came to him. It drew near to him. And it brings him outside. Uh, this is kind of another theophany where God actually appears to people. This is kind of what happens throughout the Old Testament, especially the, the patriarchs. They have these theophany moments. And it, God appears to speak to Abraham. He draws near it as the word and flesh-like appearance. Which immediately, this scene should make us, you know, for those that know your, your Bible, it should make you think about John 1. You know, the word made flesh, which is Christ, right, coming in the flesh. This is in a way, prefiguring the incarnation of Christ himself. So here the word draws near to Abraham to assure him, to speak truth, that the, his promises will come true. That one day, his heirs will outnumber the stars. And he kind of, he gives them this, this beautiful picture of what's going to happen. Your offspring will outnumber the stars. This is impossible as it is to, to number the stars. I don't know if you ever tried to do that, but as a kid, I was like, I think I could do it. And you're kind of like, one, two, okay, wait, one, two, three. Yeah. You can't do it. It's impossible. I don't care. You can't do it. Um, I dare you to try. But he's saying, as impossible as it is for you to count the stars, it's impossible to, to, to count your offspring. It's going to be that big, that massive. And uh, what's interesting is that, you know, Abraham himself actually never gets to experience the fulfillment of this. You know, later in the chapter, it tells us that more explicitly. But the promise here is actually uh, for his offspring in the future. 
I mean, the only land that Abraham ever owns in his entire life is the place that he and Sarah were buried. This promise is for his offspring. If you think about the person who's writing this text down for us, Moses is writing this for the people who are just about to enter into the promised land for the first time. Right? They're reading this and thinking about this. They're hearing this. and like, okay, we're the fulfillment of everything that's happening here. It must have been amazing, a faith builder for them to see and hear this and see their connection and how God was faithful to his promises. So this happens. And, and how does Abraham respond to this? Well, he responds to this word from the Lord by saying this in verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. So he, he hears God speak to him. He's, you know, God hears his questions. God doesn't chastise him, but he speaks to him. He draws near. He speaks truth, and, and Abraham believes, and it says he was counted as righteous. You know, Paul, uh, a New Testament writer, picks up on this in Romans 4 and actually talks about this moment to say that he was justified in this act of belief, which means he was, he was made righteous in this, act, uh, in this act of belief, which, you know, in the midst of these overwhelming circumstances and these, in the midst of unmet expectations and un, unanswered promises, um, you know, profound, profound opposition and doubt, you know, his wife is still barren. He's still without land. What does Abraham do? He believes the word of the Lord. The word assures him. To borrow some language from Hebrews, which talks about this moment, he, he sets his anchor on the rock that is God, not on his ever-changing circumstances. I'm going to read to you, this is a little bit on the longer side, but it's uh, really good, it's from Hebrews 6, 13 through 12, it says this about this moment. For when God made a, a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For the people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oaths and is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, uh, we fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Listen to this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is speaking of the hope, the deep anchor of hope that, that Abraham has in God. Because it's one thing to say, listen, I believe in God. Yeah, sure, I believe in God. It's another thing to say, I actually believe God. I actually trust him. I set my hope in him. Abraham, patiently waiting for the Lord, set his hope on God, trusting that God's word is true, that even in the stormy seas, his hope is an anchor for his soul. And I don't know if you've ever been out in tidal waters, crabbing or, or fishing. But if you have, you understand the importance of an, of an anchor. You know, if you're fishing or doing crabbing, you need to turn off your engine uh, to fish. And if you want to control so you don't like get drifted out into places you don't want to be, you drop your anchor. And your anchor has to go all the way down to the bottom of the water. It has to catch on something so it holds you. And then the tides ebb and flow, but you, you remain steady. Right? You don't just drop your anchor just a little bit under the water. It doesn't do really any good. It has to go all the way down. And uh, this is what Abraham does. He, he drops the anchor of his hope all the way down behind the curtain 
on Christ himself. You know, Keller uses this analogy to point out that there's so many other things in this world that we are tempted to put our hope in. And when we put our hope in other things, it's like dropping our anchor just below the water. It doesn't hold. Whether we put that hope in uh, our good looks, our friendships, our families, our jobs, bank accounts, children, you name it. If, 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 if those are the places you look to when the seas turn dark and stormy, your hope will not stand strong. Because none of these things are actually strong enough to hold your hope, right? Your looks will one day fade. Your friendships will come and go. They're not strong enough to anchor your soul. Even your, your family, your children are not enough. They can't hold your hope. They will disappoint you. Your job will come and go along with whatever is in your bank account. None of these things can handle your hope. They can't anchor you because they are changing things. They ebb and flow. And putting your hope in them is like dropping an anchor just below the water's surface. We need something stronger. A stronger hope. A stronger word that does not lie. And this is what God's word is for us. This is what Abraham trusted in. In his unchanging word that draws near and assures us that his promise will indeed happen no matter how strong the tides of life are, no matter how overwhelming the odds against us are, he will hold. So how do you know God's promises are real? Well, the first thing is because God says so. Because God tells us, I'm real, I will do this. You know, when a, when a child wakes up scared in the middle of the night, worried about a, a monster under the bed, or what happens? Well, they cry out, mom, dad, I'm scared. And the mother, father draws near, what do they do? They comfort with their presence. Right? They're there, they're near, they put their arm around the child, and they comfort with their words. Everything's okay, there's, there's nothing there. Um, and the child usually you know, believes at that, but typically parents go an, an extra route. Um, they don't just say that the coast is clear and that and their presence is enough, but they actually go and they, they show it, right? If there's in the closet, they'll actually get in the closet and they'll prove that there's no monster in there. Or they're or they'll go under the bed. They actually crawl under there, right? They, they, it's almost like the child needs a second witness. I got the witness of your word. Now I need the witness of an, an action to kind of prove it, to show me. And actually, you see that this is exactly what's going to happen here with Abraham. As, he, um, as this text moves, he asks a question, verse 8. Oh, Lord, but how am I to know? How am I to know? Um, you know, what's interesting is this question happens after he believes. This question doesn't happen before he believes. This, this is after he's counted righteous, after he actually believes, after his, the anchor of his hope is in the right place. He's still asking this question. That's where many of us find ourselves, right? It's like, we believe, but help my unbelief. How do I know? Which leads to the, the second answer to the question of how do we know? We know because the assurance of his oath. Uh, let's look at what happens here, verse 9 to 10. It's kind of a strange thing happens. This is God speaking. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid them, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. So what's, what in the world is happening here? Um, so, right, God tells him to get these animals. So Abraham goes and he gets these animals. And without being told, what does Abraham do? He, uh, he rips them in half. And, you know, this moment 
uh, predates uh, the sacrificial system, right? The sacrificial system has developed in Exodus and Leviticus. That's not happened. This is before then. And so, um, so what's Abraham doing? Well, he's preparing to make an oath. Um, he's preparing to make a, a covenant, a covenant which is this binding oath that carries with it, you know, blessings, good things if you obey, and, and curses, bad things if you disobey. In our day, this isn't how we make oaths, though, is it? We, we make oaths with, with signatures, right? We, we put our name to, to something. You know, as, as Ron Swanson once said, if you believe something, right, you put your name on it. Um, our signature, you know, is, is, a, is a legally binding thing, and if we break a contract that, that our name's on it, there's, there's consequences to that. Um, but back in Abraham's day, they, they were not a, a written culture. They were an oral culture. And, uh, and so they did it differently. Perhaps it's more effectively. Maybe we need to bring this kind of oath-making back. But they did it with blood. So what would happen is when they wanted to make an oath with someone, a covenant with somebody, an agreement, a binding agreement um, uh, about anything, uh, they didn't sign, sign their names to it. They walked between animals that were ripped apart. Um, and what they're saying is this. Listen, if I break my word, if I go against my word, rip me apart like these animals are ripped apart. Uh, do to me is what was done to these animals. It's a pretty weighty thing that they rightly took very seriously because you didn't want to break this oath or you would get ripped in two. Um, and you actually see this uh, exacting reference later in scripture. This is exactly what they're talking about. In Jeremiah 34, 18, we see this. It says, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. So this is, so the covenant oath says, listen, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be like these animals ripped in two. So Abraham knew exactly what God was wanting to do with him uh, when he told him to get these animals. He's like, oh, we're about to make a covenant. I know what to do. I'm going to rip these animals in half. Um, and so, so he, he goes and he does this and he starts to prepare this. He believed God's word. And now they're going to sign for it. To seal the deal. It's a covenant ratification ceremony. But what happens next is completely unexpected. Look with me back here. We see this in verse uh, 12. So after he, he prepares uh, these animals, uh, he's driving the birds away that are coming on the, on, the, on the animals. And it says this, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This sleep that fell upon Abram here was not like uh, he just got tired and fell asleep, but this is like a divine God putting him to sleep. This is the same word for, put, for sleep here. It's the same word that was used for Adam uh, when uh, Eve was made, that deep sleep. Um, so he's, he's put onto this, into this uh, deep sleep, and then this darkness descends. And then we get these words where God is promising again all that he has promised, but it will be for his offspring telling this story that the first readers of this have just lived and they're about to enter into that promised land. Exciting. And then we see this in verse 17. He says, And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So this wild thing of this smoke and this fire and this pot, the words... Uh, here written like that, these are words, these are the same words actually used to describe God's presence on Mount Sinai. Speaking of his glory, or his Shekinah glory, his fullness of his presence, and there's this severeness 
to it, this controlled chaos. As one pastor says to try to give us a good imagination for what this might have looked like, it'd be like picturing a lightning bolt stuck in time, uh, crackling and, and alive uh, right there. And that, and that lightning bolt walks through the animals. As we witness this, you know, again, Keller says this about this. He says, this is a great picture of the gospel. The great question, how can I know? We can know because God passed through the animals and makes an oath with his people in blood. God is saying, listen, if I don't keep my promise to you and your offspring, if everything I say does not happen, if I don't bring salvation to the world through you, if I don't bless the world through you like I said I would, then do to me what has been done to these animals. Let the immortal become mortal. Let the impossible become possible. May God himself be cut down and killed. You know, and up until this point, right, Abraham's main concern was knowing, is God going to keep his promises? Is God going to keep his side of the covenant? This oath gives him the assurance that he needs. That God is serious about this. He's willing to die for this. He's got to be thinking, listen, I, I, okay, now I know that God, you can be trusted because you covenanted in blood with me. But what about Abraham, right? He's got to be thinking, what about me? God, can I be trusted? Won't you grow weary with my disobedience, which there's more disobedience of Abraham to come, right? This is a question we often ask of God. When will God finally grow weary of our disobedience, of our inability to follow him? When will his love and his grace finally run dry? And this is where we look at the story and we see that not only did God walk through these animals, but look at this story. He walked through alone. Abraham never walked through these animals. He didn't, he didn't go through the, the, the animals and then turn to Abraham and say, Abraham, now it's, it's your turn. turn. But he did it himself. This is radical. You know, in this day and age, whenever a king entered into a relationship with a servant, either both parties would walk through or just the servant would. Never would the king walk through alone. What God is saying is this. He's saying, do this to me. Tear me into if I disobey and also if you disobey, Abraham. So I will take the covenant curses on myself for your disobedience as well as mine. God says, I, I, may I be cut off from the land of the living if I disobey and if you disobey. This is where we see clearly, listen, salvation is not a partnership. It's not a cooperative effort. It is a work of God. And in the Gospels, we find that this isn't just lip service. But he meant it. You know, Mark 15, 33 is alluding to this very evening, telling us of another evening that was dark. It says this in Mark 15, 33, and when the sixth hour had come and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This evening with Christ on the cross, is looking back in fulfillment to Genesis 15. When all the covenant breaking of God's people, past, present, future, is laid on Christ, where he is forsaken, right? The immortal becoming mortal. Jesus being ripped from the land of the living, being taken into the land of the dead. His flesh being torn in two. And this is exactly how Isaiah 53 describes it. Uh, in Isaiah 53, 8 says this, uh, speaking of Christ, that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Friends, on Christ, 
We find the fulfillment of this passage where all the covenant curses, all the disobedience of God's people through all the Old Testament, which there's a lot there, through the early church, through our lives, through the lives to come, all of it has been placed on Christ. And in Christ, our inheritance of land and our heritage are secure. How can we know that God keeps his promises? How can we know that he is real? Because he, in fact, did keep his promise to Abraham. He paid for our covenant breaking by taking the punishment on himself. This is how you can know that God's promises are true. It's by looking to Christ. And I think there's a couple different ways that we can respond to this. First, you know, in your life, if your anchor is not all the way down, if your anchor is not rooted in the work of Christ, then anytime there's a challenge in your life, you will deeply struggle. Right? Because God's, God's mercies are new every morning, but so are troubles, so are battles. And our problems in life, when we, when we have problems in life, those, those problems that we come upon in life are because we struggle to trust in God's promises. Right? Why do we get angry? We get angry because we don't trust God's justice. We, we beat ourselves up because we don't trust his grace and love. We lie, we cheat, we steal because we don't trust his promise to provide. All our covenant breaking is ultimately because we don't trust, because we hope in other things. So how do we drop the anchor of our hope all the way down into Christ? Well, it's simply by looking upon him, looking upon the word made flesh, the word who drew near that you might know him that you might share in his eternal inheritance. And he makes that possible by his blood. So when doubt comes in, what we're called to do here is bring it to God like Abraham did. Look to Christ. He alone can anchor your soul. And when we look to him, when you see how far he will go to save you, that he will not even keep himself from you. Well, it's only there will you be able to drop your anchor all the way down because there is no greater anchor in the world than Christ. Nothing stronger but death itself couldn't keep him from us. So here the call is to put our hope in him, trust in him. He is the only one that can hold your hope. May we be a people who don't put our trust in lesser things, but who anchor our souls in Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks that you are true that your word does not lie, but it testifies to the greater things. May we be a people who hope, who trust, who are enamored by you, and the ebbs and flows in life that we would hold fast. Grow our trust. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.